0: that back. Um, but but Paul will just continue to unpack this, but I want us to really concentrate our thoughts on the, the mind and the conscience um, and just the importance of that. But, but first let me just open us up in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, we we do thank you for this time. We thank you for the privilege of gathering together in the company of the saints. We thank you for the, just the privilege of opening up your truth and opening up your wondrous revelation to us in heeding the constant warnings that are your very breath to us, that your word is pure Your word is true. Your word is used to make the wide and everything's good, it's all good, very narrow. Lord, may we walk faithfully in that narrow truth, that narrow gate. And until this flesh has been finally and fully put to death, may we keep our consciences fully informed with the Word of God that we might walk in a manner worthy of You and that we might do this to Your glory and to Your praise. And in your precious name, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. So I want to just, just begin again with the reading of our text. So we're going to stretch into verses 4 and 5 a little bit, but if you'll read with me Romans 2, 1 through 5. And I'm going to kind of show you um, a little bit about Paul's style of writing and particularly prominent in this book because it is such a large book. Um, But verse 1, we've read many times before, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And that can be universally, categorically, and 100% the guarantee of every one of us. Every one of us. And I I hope you feel the tension that, that I feel when I try to think about The role and purpose of the church, the role and purpose of the elder, that is to go chase down the brother or sister that's going after sin and bring them back through the conviction of the Word of God, through the judgment of the Word of God, and the role, the vessel that we are in that process. (laughs) And the fine line that I think we all struggle and fail with, which is that we are the vessel we are not the judge god is the judge we are the vessel that has been brought to new life to take the word of god properly taught properly counseled into that situation for the purpose of informing the conscience and extracting out of the conscience whatever it is that is causing them to comfortably go after the very sin that crucified the one whom they call lord and savior right that's that's at the heart of this but but here the warning is don't be the judge because you're guilty of the very same thing be the vessel by which you bring god's judgment into their life, and there is one of the underlying reasons why we live in a society today where the conscience is literally seared away. Because there is no sense of the judgment of God. It has been stripped away from the scriptures, from the churches, from this, from that, unless there is a faithful treatment of the full counsel of God, the judgment of God the eternal damnation that God produces, the wrath of God, the abandoning wrath of God, the societal effect that everything Romans 1 reveals to us, if that is all eliminated, your conscience is now just floating freestyle. And the noetic effect of sin, which is the universal effect of the original sin that has now permeated everyone of us, just wreaks havoc. And all of a sudden, we can very easily be on the condoning side of what God condemns, right? And the, the difficulty there is, well, I struggle with that sin. How in the world am I gonna go to my brother or my sister when I struggle with the, either that sin or a sin very similar, right? But yet we're called to do that, right? What does the Lord say? What did we read last week? You must take the log out of your eye You must humble yourself to the fact that you are a sinner saved by the grace of God and that God is doing his work and he will finish what he began. But there is something much more important that Paul is alluding to, which is the beautiful purity of the church. And we all have to do that for one another. And if it's not bathed in love and humility, just forget it. We're right here in this passage, in this condemnation. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For when passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them themselves, and here it comes, that you will escape The judgment of God. And Paul, that is an insertion into the conviction of the soul right there. You will be judged by God, he says. And the real question at that point, when you come to that realization that that is true, you have to ask, will I stand in that judgment? And even more importantly, on what basis will I stand? Which is precisely why when he gets done working through Romans 3.20 and his universal condemnation of man, he goes and you begin to see two words. What you see in 1, 2, and 3a is condemnation, debased, God's wrath. Law, law, law to Romans 3.21, justification, righteousness, all the way through, right? Will we stand in the judgment and on what basis will we stand? Right? And that is the only way we can walk through and be obedient to the call of the church. Is because our sins have been covered by Christ. Every one of us, every one of our sins who have come to a saving relationship with Christ, who have come to a genuine God given belief that Christ died for those sins, we now are declared righteous, even though we're not, and are now the ambassador for the church to now teach the process of sanctification that the Holy Spirit is doing in them, right? And that's what Paul is going to work us to by the time he gets to Roman Romans 6. That you will escape the judgment of God, and here comes the cause. Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, Not knowing that God's kindness is is meant to lead you to repentance. That's what Dr. Boyce was talking about, if you recall, a couple of weeks ago. The most dangerous thing we can ever leave in the soul of an individual is that they are okay when they are not okay. Okay. And there's a great danger in that, isn't there? Especially when you live in a society that just wants people to feel better. That's the placebo that seems to work just fine. But the absolute tragic thing about a placebo is almost the very moment that the person taking the placebo realizes it's a placebo. There's an onslaught of reality Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that, the, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be Revealed, And that is the kind of anchor that Paul is setting into motion after he's walked us through this Romans 1 passage that is so fearful. Do you think any of you, you will stand in this judgment, right? And we'll come back to this in, a, in next week, Lord willing. But, but this impenitent heart, that, that is spiritual sclerosis, right? <laughs> that is the hardness of the heart. That basically goes to the previous verse that says, you know what? Life's pretty good, right? I've got a comfortable home. I've got kids. I've got this. I've got that. Life's pretty good, right? I don't see any real need to have cause for concern. And we just sear away, sear away with the thought that we're just. And we get affirmed in that all the time, right? That's the killing of the conscience. Paul, so jump out with me to Romans two fourteen through 16, and you'll see that Paul puts these bookends and he puts the law right smack in the middle of it, right? So this is this continuity of thought where Paul kind of has these these markers that he's working his way through, and then he fills them in inside the middle. And the filler between Romans 2, 1 through 5 and 2, 14 through 16 is the law. Romans two fourteen says, and here really speaking to those that are of a Jewish persuasion, or better yet, a works-based religion persuasion, to broaden it. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their Hearts. Where do we get the first clue of that law written on the hearts of humanity? Where does that show up? And in what way? When Adam and Eve their exactly. When Adam and Eve realized their nakedness, and what did they do? They ran from God. They actually thought, because they knew he was the creator. (laughs) He knew that, that he was their creator, and the creator of the entire beautiful planet and garden that they were in. But yet all of a sudden, with the introduction of the noetic effect of sin on their minds, they believed with a mind that has now become futile, that they could actually hide from God, and their conscience was just Searing away. The more that they believe that, right? Why did God say, Where are you? Was that for God? Right? It's right there, right at the beginning. That law written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Verse 16, on that day, when according to, listen to the beautiful possessiveness of Paul, to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, we're going to get to this passage and unpack that a lot, and I don't want to try to unpack it too much, but there's so much to consider there, right? Do you notice how in the Titus passage there's there's the mind and the conscience, and here now there's the heart and the conscience, and Paul speaks about them as two very separate things? Isn't that interesting? To show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. So it is as if you have the law written on your heart and then you have this internal instrument that is looking at the law that's written on your heart and it's bearing witness to your soul and it's saying okay, not okay, okay, not okay, not okay, not okay, okay, right? This is the little two-year-old when you tell him don't play with that electrical cord, right? <laughs> And they're going to do, they're doing, they're doing, then they're looking, then they're looking, right? That, that's that war that's going on inside that little baby. I'm sure none of your grandchildren or children ever did that, right? God's given us an internal mechanism. And it's a function of the mind. And it is a function of scripture. And it is a function of how we now think and feel. But the conscience can accuse or excuse based on what? All of that. Or said another way, everything you take in, your conscience begins to use as its means of excusing or accusing you. Okay? And this was the main thing I wanted to try to lay down for us this morning. Because think how wildly off course our conscience can be. Imagine if you're sitting in a church that is just teaching absolute heresy. And doing it masterfully. And you begin to absorb it. And you begin to believe it. And you're going to quickly begin to live it. And eventually, that conscience from whatever was there before begins to get seared away, right? Which is why Paul has put in between these two passages the law of God, which is pure and eternal. Not one little bit of it will pass away. And it will be the very means by which every one of us are judged, Now, what is the purpose of that warning to us? To flee to Christ. Because we won't escape the judgment if we don't flee to Christ and trust in his righteousness against the law regardless of what our consciences has done over the course of time as it was being informed and not informed. This also brings us back to an understanding. Remember the litany of passages that I read a couple of weeks ago about all the stuff going on in the church? The orgies, get out of that, Get, get out of the adultery, get out of the deceitfulness, get out of this, get out. It's replete and he covered all the churches, right? The process of sanctification that Paul is going to teach us through here all the way out to Romans 8 is the process of putting off what you once knew to be perfectly acceptable to your conscience and putting on what the Word of God has now informed your conscience in the believing of the scriptures and then applied to your life. That's how the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us, Right? But if we are not actively engaged in that battle there's a good chance your conscience is really floating more towards the world's way of thinking because that is much more natural to the flesh. Right? That's why we believe it's loving to leave a person who's living a life utterly condemned in that condemnation course because we just don't want to hurt their feelings. And although that is temporally loving, is that the most loving thing we can do for that individual? That's what Paul is raising here. But he's saying we've got to inform the conscience of the truth of God. We've got to be ambassadors and handlers of the word of God so that the truth can be inserted into the mind And will change the way that person thinks and the way they behave through the work of the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit is in fact there because he's going to make sure of it because that is his primary ministry in every believer is to exalt Christ in the obedience of their life their conformance to Christ not as a measure of righteousness but really as a measure of their love for Christ. And their thankfulness for everything that he's done, which is why he goes to Romans 12 like he does. Go with me to 1 Timothy 4. And we'll see Paul touch on this again in a, in a very similar way. So, so, verse three fourteen, we, we see this, your, your chapter, your, your, your break there talks about the mystery of godliness, where he says in verse 14 of 1 Timothy 3, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So, here's this message again, right? How ought we behave in the household of God? Which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of what? The truth. That's where our minds and our souls and our consciences get informed with the truth. And we need one another because we are all struggling with a number of things that come right out of our former lives, our societies, our communities, our families, <laughs> right? It's a central theme. But look at, look at 1 Timothy 4.1. Uh, and uh, you can imagine as a Roman, former Roman Catholic, th- this passage is just searing to me. And I think you'll see why. Now, the Spirit expressly says, and that, that expressly is intensely. The Spirit is intensely saying this to me. Right? I, that's hard to fathom, isn't it? <laughs> that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to what? Deceitful spirits. And teachings of demons Halloween has made this kind of like, "woo, here we go. We're going into the woo. This is an intense, serious warning from the spirit of God to Paul. Don't lose sight of that. That is exactly what Satan wants the church to do is throw this idea right into the foolishness of halloween as an example this is as intense as it gets because this is the beloved bride the beloved church that paul has devoted his life and his death to right and it expressly says to him that there were those that will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars, whose what? Consciences are seared. So how does Satan and the demons use the church, the religion, They find seared consciences. And they just fill them full of deceitful, damning lies because it appeals to the flesh, Genesis 3. And then they insert that right into the church, a little pinhole in the bottom of a dam that as the water flows through it, it gets bigger and it gets bigger and it gets bigger until the whole dam comes down. And church after church after church falls away. Right? But look at the condemnation and the specificity that is described here 2,000 years ago. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, why would he pick forbidding marriage and? Requiring abstinence from food. Because those were elevated forms of righteousness, of purity, of godlikeness, right? This is the top of the Tower of Babel. These are the people that are really off the charts, holy, right? Because they they can abstain from marriage. They can abstain from foods. They can abstain from the very gifts God has given us for our good. Right? But the instruments that the demons use are those with a seared conscience. Seared from what? What? This is the really important question. Seared from what? The Word of God. The truth from God. No thanks, God. I think I'll go a different route. Much easier route. A much more socially accepted route. I don't know if any of you get the letters from Grace to You Church, but the beautiful cover this week about the man who is struggling horrendously with the, the leanings of his career company. And he was just distraught until he just simply came to the realization that a life lived to the glory of God is worth living no matter what circumstance you find in it, right? little bit like our study this weekend, isn't it, Kiana? Go read Lamentations cover to cover. And I'm telling you, if you aren't snapped out of a realization that there can be peace and joy found in Christ in any circumstance, that's what you will take away from the book of Lamentations because the description is the horrific condition of Jerusalem at the time of the captivity. It's just horrific. And Jeremiah is absolutely crushed by it in a deep state of despair until what? He began to think rightly about God. And all of a sudden, everything in his words and his countenance of the words that he describes totally changes. But nothing about his circumstance changed at all. Right? Because his mind got right. His conscience got right about what God is actually doing that is, by the way, much bigger than he was. Right? Because it was the judgment on Israel. So you see this relationship between the mind, the truths of Scripture, the conscience, and how it literally changes the way you see and endure everything. And that is so much of what Paul is trying to reinforce to us. I think we all can tell that one of the great dangers we have today is the tendency to be that hypocrite who condemns what we do. I think we also know that one of the ever-increasing dangers is today is to condone what God condemns, both sides of that narrow gate that we've talked so much about the last couple of weeks. One of the big complaints about that is legalism, right? What did our Lord say on the last night of his life to those men? John fourteen twenty one. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. The process there is to believe God, to believe the Word of God, and to apply it to your life in obedience. Not to earn righteousness, but to demonstrate both to your own soul and to the world around you that you belong to God. And that every bit of obedience that you conduct yourself in is a thanks and praise to God. And Jesus says, you want to know the one who loves me? It's that one. It's that one, right? So let's touch on how we must wage this war, right? Go to Ephesians 6.10 through 13, and we're primarily focused on This judgment of God and the work of the conscience. But go to Ephesians 6.10. I'm going to look at 6.10 through 15-ish. Where we have Paul again. And Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Everything that we just read about in Titus. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness. That is the system that we are living in. That is the demonic, hierarchical system that has as its lead the single most brilliant and beautiful of all the angels that God created. And he has now spent the entirety of the course of humanity masterfully learning how to distort and corrupt everything. Everything. Right? That's the backdrop that Paul is giving us here. Verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand firm and that's got to be a function of both our conscience and our minds and remember the epignosis right the full and precise knowledge of god that's what we need how do we get the full and precise knowledge of god you believe in christ you receive the holy spirit who authored the scriptures you take up the scriptures, and you now, with the work of the Holy Spirit in your soul, you begin to put off everything that does not square with scriptures, the Bereans. And you put on everything that squares with scripture to the glory of the Lord. That that's Now look at the way Paul unpacks this in verse 14. Stand therefore, Ephesians 6, having fastened on the belt of truth. There it is. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Have truth and be living it. What good does the truth do you if you're not living your life righteously? You are searing your conscience even faster because you're the hypocrite of Romans 2, 1 through 5. Right? The breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Right. Just anxious to share the gospel. Anxious to share the truth of Scripture. But as Paul teaches in Romans one eighteen through three hundred twenty. The gospel begins with condemnation of every single human being, right? And we've got to be ready to share that gospel in truth and love, right? And that's what Paul's talking about here as he brings us to this passage in verse 15. And we can end here on MacArthur on this passage, and I thought it was very, very helpful in shedding light on all the different ways that this will manifest itself when not faithfully pursued. MacArthur says on Romans 6.14, for the third time, the apostle calls Christians to take a firm position in the spiritual battle against Satan and his minions. Whether confronting Satan's efforts to distrust God, did God really say, Right? Forsaking obedience, legalism is the attack from within the church. Producing doctrinal confusion and falsehood, what does the scripture mean to you? (laughs) Pretty dangerous proposition, isn't it? Hindering service to God. Bringing division. Serving God in the flesh, living hypocritically, being worldly, or in any other way, reject biblical obedience. This armor is our defense, girded with truth. So with all that in mind as kind of an intro into this transition to Romans 2 really four on out let me just close with 2 Corinthians 2 14 through 16. It's absolutely beautiful this passage especially in light of the heaviness of what we just talked about. 2 Corinthians 2 14 says but thanks be to God Who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Aren't those wonderful words after all that? And how intense this war is and how intense this battle is. And it's not flesh and blood. It is a spiritual realm that has manipulated the fallenness of humanity for as long as its existence. And I assure you it is stunningly refined in its deceitfulness. It knows precisely. And Think about Romans I'm sorry, Revelation 17 and 18. If you're not familiar, read them. There are two things that are dominant at that time. It is a world that is absolutely controlled by a monetary system. They determine if you have a a small amount of wheat to eat and the exchanges that are going all over the world and they are also controlling what is acceptable and not acceptable from a spiritual perspective that's Revelation 17 and 18 right that's the consummation of this entire effort of Satan is to pull the world under that type of control But Christ will always lead us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the, listen to this, fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Epignosis. Full and precise knowledge of God. We have to be those truth bearers. So we have to know the truth. Students of the truth, right? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those, and here is the among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We don't determine which way they react to the gospel, we are simply responsible to bring that gospel. That Paul is unpacking all the way through Romans. Irregardless of the response that occurs. Right? Irregardless of that response. We're that aroma of Christ. To God. Notice, we're the aroma of Christ to God. (laughs) That is our, as Paul says in Romans 12, reasonable service. Expected service. What? This is what, this is the least you can do for Christ, to be the aroma of Christ. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to one, a fragrance from death to death. The second death is a death that never dies, never dies. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And Paul just sums it up beautifully, doesn't he? Who is sufficient for these things? He couldn't get over it either. He couldn't get over that God called us out of our sinful lives, made us the aroma of Christ to bring these truths to a dying and lost world. (laughs) And Paul can only say, who is sufficient for these? Right? And even he was, it was I, but it was not I, but it was I. Right? It's the Holy Spirit working in us to be this aroma of a life lived for Christ and a truth taught and preached and shared for Christ. Right? Which is precisely what Paul's going to unpack and teach us how to do all the way through this book which is why he wrote it to the book of Rome, to the church in Rome, right? Maybe just one last passage to pick up and connect to next week. Isaiah 55:11 says, "So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty." Exactly what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians 2 but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it, right? That's Isaiah 55, verse 11. And what that says, when we are faithfully, truthfully, biblically sharing the truth, it is God who sent that word through us to whoever is receiving it. And he already has the intended outcome decreed of that individual. We are just the vessel in between that if we are faithful with the word of God. And that is what Paul is unpacking. Okay, And we're going to see that over the course of the next several weeks. So, Alright, that's our lesson for this morning.
1: So, Thank you. You're
0: welcome.